Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and today's episode is all about Trappist One. Now on any given night I like to look up at the night sky and ponder the stars. Are there any planets orbiting them? Is there any life on those planets? And what kind of life would that be? And before 1992, when the first exoplanet discovery was confirmed, I believed that I knew that there were planets out there, just given the sheer number of stars, but also given the sheer number of science fiction films that I'd seen. I wanted to believe. I had to believe. Then along came that first discovery and proved it. And it's been followed by a swarm of planets. As I'm recording this podcast, the total number of exoplanets discovered today is 3,472. Now, you probably didn't hear about the 12 that were discovered just last week, or whichever week you're listening. There's probably just been some more discovered, but you probably didn't hear about them. Because most exoplanet discoveries these days skip by, largely unnoticed, by the press and the public. We already know there are planets out there. Personally, I find that a bit peculiar. It's a bit like when people became apparently bored of the Apollo missions or the shuttle missions. But such is human nature. We want something new. We want something different. So when the seven exoplanets orbiting Trappist-1 were announced in February of 2017, the world sat up and listened. Trappist-1 is 39 light years from Earth, or about 12 parsecs. So that's about a Kessel run for Han Solo, a bit more of a stretch for us. But in galactic terms, it's pretty much a near neighbour. If you want to find Trappist-1 in the sky, you need to look in the constellation of Aquarius. But sadly, you won't be able to see the star with your naked eye, as it's an ultra-cool brown dwarf star. In other words, it's not as hot or as bright as many of the stars in our night sky. So even though it's nearer than many, we can't see it with our naked eye. It's about 2,000 times dimmer than our sun, and only slightly larger than Jupiter. But it is a star, and orbiting it are seven exoplanets. And, as the TRAPPIST-1 website boasts, the system presents humanity with opportunities to study terrestrial worlds outside our solar system. What might we see if we stood on the surface of one of the TRAPPIST planets? Okay, so the first thing that would be super striking and really impressive is that when you, your planet uh, passes by one of its neighboring planets, the, the, the size of the planet in the sky would be, uh, I think, bigger than the moon. That's Emmeline Bolmore. Emmeline studies the dynamic processes which drive tidal interactions. From both uh, your neighbors on both sides, uh, you, you could have really nice view. The central star also, of course, would be very different from what we see. Uh, it would be like much redder. Probably the sky wouldn't be blue, maybe like reddish also, or orange. It would be so completely different. Let's, let's be crazy for a moment and imagine that there could actually be life and maybe vegetation. It probably wouldn't be green as well, I guess. Okay. <laughs> then we, it's more like science fiction, but things would be completely different than from Earth, uh, logically, because the star is so different. And especially if you have tidally locked planets, you have like a side that only sees the, the, the sun and the other side that only sees the night. So that would be uh, that would be really weird. You could go, yeah, so you'd be like, I'll just, I fancy doing a bit of astronomy. I'm going to go over that bit, and now, <laughs> I, I, yeah, now I want to get a tan, so yeah. I'm going to go that yeah. bit. 
Exactly, and if you stand on the Terminator, it's like a perpetual sunset, which is also very nice. <laughs> Imagine how much the houses cost there. They must be. Yeah, <laughs> that must be the best spot. <laughs> Emmeline is a postdoc researcher at CEA Sackley. Much more from her later. And one of the first things I noticed when this research was published in Nature was the huge list of scientists involved in it. And the lead scientist was Michael Guillon. So what we have done is to search for planets passing in front of stars. What we measure is the brightness of the star, and when a planet passes in front, you have a drop of brightness. So this is the transit. And so we target with our project uh, the smallest stars in the solar neighborhood, because these are the only ones for which we would be able to uh, characterize in detail a Earth-sized uh, exoplanet, especially a potentially habitable one. Because for larger stars, the signal from the planet would be too much diluted by the light of the star, and we wouldn't be able to see anything with current technology. So if you want to study a potentially habitable planet, you have really to focus on small stars, and especially these ultra-cool-dwarf stars, which are the smallest uh, kind of stars. So in 2011, they pointed their robotic telescope called TRAPPIST, that stands for the Transiting Planets and Planetesimals Small Telescope. To be honest, it's actually named after the beer that the astronomers love, but they managed to make it fit. And it's actually a pair of robotic telescopes high in the mountains of Chile, which they pointed at around 30 ultra-cool dwarf stars, of which TRAPPIST-1 was, of course, one, and monitored them for transits. It was 2015 when TRAPPIST-1 showed a transit signal. Initially they found evidence of three planets and published that in May 2016. Now at this point Mikael got in touch with other astronomers around the world because they had a problem with the orbital period of the third planet. It wasn't doing what they expected. They needed more observations so they got in touch with astronomers using the very large telescope, UKIRT, the Liverpool telescope and the William Herschel telescope and one of those astronomers was Matt Burley at the University of Leicester. And I went up to Leicester to meet him. More transits were needed to try and pin down the orbit, so Michel Guillon and his team contacted me because we work in the exoplanets area and we work. Guillon sort of is associated with the next generation transit survey which we're helping to run. He asked us, Can you, you've got some observing time coming up, can you look at this for us, try and see if this transit that we think is going to happen is actually is there because that will help to pin down the orbits or at least one of the solutions they had to the orbits. The South African Observatory is a place called Sutherland. It's about four hours' drive from Cape Town. It's, it's remote, I mean, you head up the main road between Cape Town and Johannesburg, take a left, drive for an hour and a half, pass three cars on the way, <laughs> get to the small town of Sutherland, which is just as you imagine any colonial town in the outback of Australia or South Africa, dusty and old colonial building. The crew itself is quite high up, it's a plateau, so you actually drive up a, an escarpment to get onto the crew, and then once you're on it, it's kind of flat with these hills and what South Africans call copies. We've sort of weathered, the top's sort of flattened off. And uh, so the observatory was set up there in the 60s. We, uh, we, we were lucky we got some good... Uh, it was myself and my PhD student, Alex Chowshev. We had some good weather. We, uh, we got the data, analysed it as fast as possible the next day. Didn't see a transit. <laughs> <laughs> 
sent it back to Misha and he said, no, 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 that's fine, that's fine, that's great, because uh, that rules out that particular solution. And of course, you know, long story later, we now know that there are seven planets. And so what was happening was that transits of different planets were being confused with each other. So you needed to have the full picture to get all the orbits out properly. So the ground-based observations were intriguing to say the least, but ground-based telescopes, wonderful as they are, have limitations. There's the weather and the cycle of day and night, but even space telescopes like Hubble, which orbit the Earth, have their downsides too, because there are times when the Earth gets between Hubble and the star it's trying to observe. But there is, of course, a solution. Here's Mikhail Guillaume again. We uh, ask NASA to access the Spitzer Space Telescope for three weeks in a row. We had the data taken in uh, fall, so September, October, and they showed wow, an amazing uh, collection of transits of signals of planets. There were 34 transits of planets, all of them more or less of the size of the Earth. And we could really crack the system. We, we could be sure of our solutions. There were seven planets all the seven being temperate in the sense that they are uh, far enough from the star and the star is cold enough to make possible, at least on a fraction of the surface, liquid water, in theory. In practice, we don't know because it really uh, depends on the atmospheric composition, the, the composition of the planet. We have no idea of this so far, but they are very interesting in terms of search for habitable conditions. Really, the first one was very exciting. Already one planet was exciting. Now we have a, a full collection of planets. Three of them are in the habitable zone, where liquid water is the most likely to, to exist. The largest time of ex excitement, I think, it's when I saw the Riker of Spitzer with all these transits. And there were two more planets. We didn't even know about them. We had no, not detected them in the ground-based data because they were smaller. Uh, and so it made seven Earth-sized planets. It was just completely crazy. So we, it was, we were really, really excited. Yeah. We yeah. were, I was working with uh, a two friends which were on Skype and we, we made a kind of celebration, a remote celebration for this because we couldn't believe what we had in front of the eyes. So it was just pure magic. So they have all this data from the ground-based telescopes and the Spitzer Space Telescope and there's detail lurking in the numbers. Catherine Deck was a postdoc at Caltech and spotted an opportunity when the first paper back in May 2016 came out. I went to a collaborator of mine and I said, hey, I think we can measure masses for these planets and let's look into this. And what we realized right away was that the original team that discovered the TRAPPIST-1 system, that they had a huge proposal in with Spitzer, a telescope uh, that's up in space, that's run by NASA, they had a huge proposal in with Spitzer to study this system. And so what we did then was we contacted them and just said, basically, we think we can help. If you want it, our help, let us know. And then that's how we became part of the team. I've got a telescope at home. I love it dearly, and through it I can see detail on the planets in our solar system. But stars through it are really just better resolved points of light. And obviously I can't see planets orbiting those stars. And even to space telescopes like Spitzer, which with its huge mirror can collect far more photons than my back garden telescope can, the star still appears as a point of light. So I asked Catherine Deck, how she went about calculating the mass of seven planets orbiting a star 39 light years away. You can't use this technique that I'm about to describe for all systems. Um, it's sort of, they have to be special systems. Um, I'm sure you've heard and your listeners have heard of the, um, the transit technique, where what you're doing is you're not actually measuring 
a planet directly. You're not taking a picture of the system and saying like, oh, look, there's a bright spot. That's the planet. You don't even resolve the star. So all you can see is that there is a star with some brightness. That brightness is changing over time. And it changes when the planet transits the star. So when it actually passes in front of the star with respect to our line of sight, so with respect to the telescope, and the telescope sees that, oh, the star got a little bit dimmer because the planet was there blocking light. That's the way we found these planets, and from that, what you learn is the size of a planet, its radius, but you don't learn its mass. So how do you do that? In any multi-planet system, all the planets interact with each other gravitationally, but typically those interactions are very weak. For this system, they're actually strong enough that we can observe the effects of them. If you just had a single planet and a star, then the transits would occur almost like clockwork. So exactly once per period of that planet, once per orbital period, you'd see a transit happen. Um, But as soon as you add in other planets, that story changes. And so sometimes the transits come a little bit early, sometimes they come a little bit late, because the planets are speeding and slow each other up because of their gravitational interactions. So what we can do is we can see that, look, these transits aren't happening periodically. They're actually sometimes a bit early, sometimes they're a bit late. And so we take that data and we model it, and that allows us to understand the gravitational interaction between the planets. And the law of gravity, Newton's uh, law of gravity, it just depends on the masses of the interacting objects and their relative positions. So by measuring that, we're basically measuring the masses of the planets. Um, But then, yeah, the next thing is that the implication is that the density that we infer from those masses um, shows that they're rocky or that some of them are rocky. And that's that's very interesting. That's got to be a bit of a rush when you're the first person (laughs) to discover that. Yeah, so I should clarify that this work that I am talking about, we actually had three people working on it. It was me, Eric Agle, and also Bryce Demery. The reason why it was sort of important that we had a number of people working on it was because this uh, analysis technique, especially for a system this complicated, can be tricky to carry out. And we wanted to make sure that we all did it independently using our own tools and came up with the same answer. So yeah, so I've been working on exoplanets for almost seven years, basically. So all of my PhD, and then also for like two and a half years of a postdoc. You know, right when I started studying exoplanets, that was when the Kepler mission was finding planets and really coming down with lots and lots of new systems. And especially because I was new in the field, but also because those systems were so interesting, I was, you know, there's this rush of excitement and kind of wonder at what we were finding. And um, I feel like it's like that again, actually. So just a system that is this incredible and be part of it um, just reminds me of sort of how I felt when I first started out working on planets. I know that many of you listening to the podcast will know how a big breakthrough like this can ease the pressure when it comes to funding and gaining support from your institution. Matt Burley has a very entertaining blog in which he describes himself as the depressed astronomer. And when I asked him what he felt when the news came through of this stunning discovery that he was a key part of... He was preoccupied with more earthly concerns. Every five years the government mostly measures, wants a measure of the research output of every department of every university. And we as individuals are under pressure from the universities to publish, from our employers to publish high impact papers. From the university's point of view it needs to to have a, it needs all of its departments to have a good score because that's related to some of the funding income. Not all of it, but some of the funding income. It's also a reputation thing, of course. These figures go into various league tables and so on. So vice-chancellors rightly worry about that. You'll find plenty of us will argue that this is not necessarily the best way of doing things or doesn't necessarily give you 
an answer that doesn't have a huge error bar on it. Um, the, the worry is, uh, for an individual is, is that it becomes an exercise in, or you come under pressure personally, even though perhaps universities will try not to, or think they might, they're trying hard not to put people under pressure. People do feel it. So all of us, when we get a nice paper, feel just a bit more relief. But yeah, bottom line, we need high-impact papers. Spread across the department. Although, you, you, I, mean, I should say, you're not in the ref, you don't get an individual score back. Mm-hmm. So there's not something, thank God. I mean, I'd hate it if you went for a future job and your future employer said, and what was your <coughs> personal ref score? Um, so it's just done as a department. My bosses are probably quite pleased that, all right, yeah, good, yeah. there's one, one high-impact paper. So did they all so buy you a, a Trappist beer to say yeah, that? That would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but the government-induced stress didn't suck all the joy out of the discovery for Matt. I thought, I thought it was a really um, nice team to be involved with, actually. It was very uh, very well organised, got a nice email. Thanking them. I mean, it wasn't just myself and my student. There was a couple of other people, local South Africans, had done some observations as well, and then one or two other teams around the world had contributed yeah we got a nice email that said uh, now we're putting the paper together for nature and here's the light curves here's the result thank you all but yeah it's also nice uh, it's very interesting result and nice to be involved with it now another member of that team is emmeline bolmont the trappist one work came at a great time for emmeline during my phd thesis i uh, principally worked on planets around very low mass stars which is and even brown dwarfs which is exactly what uh, trappist one is so um, i was contacted uh, first by uh, amore trio uh, with uh, a co-author of the paper as he knew i was working on that and knowing that uh, the this system was a multi-planet system with very close in planets so tidally interacting and uh, actually i i wrote uh, during my phd I, I wrote a code that actually does uh, dynamical orbital calculations for this kind of system uh, systems that are tidally evolving so basically i did some simulations of this system to have an idea of uh, how these planets could evolve and how uh, the state of the system could be uh, today. Okay, so what makes you say that they're tidally locked? Well, the the planets are very close in. Uh, almost everything is uh, below 0.01 AU, so like a uh, uh, hundredth of uh, the distance uh, between the Earth and the Sun. So it's very tightly packed, and within this distance you have seven planets, which is a lot. So we expect all of them to be tidally evolving. So uh, to uh, to deform the star uh, and uh, the planets are also deformed. One expected uh, output of that is that we expect the planets to be tidally locked. So it just means that they are going to show the same face to the to the star, just like the moon is showing always the same face to us. The thing is that the the star is deforming the planets. It's uh, creating what we call a tidal bulge, and initially this bulge is not aligned with the position of the star, and so you have a torque acting up on the planet to bring it back into alignment. You need some time for this uh, configuration to be uh, reached. The estimation of the age of the system is very 
not well constrained, let's say. We don't really know, but e even if uh, it's the lowest uh, limit uh, of the age, it's still quite a long time and plenty of time for the planets to get in this uh, tidally locked configuration. Here in Bristol, the tidal effect on the river is dramatic. It's the second highest tidal range in the world, and it's a part of my every day. But the tidal interactions of planets are fundamental in a way that passes me by as I walk alongside the river. So basically what happens is in a, in a Earth moon system is that uh, the moon has reached uh, this uh, synchronization state, so it's tidally locked, but the Earth is not, obviously. So the, the Earth is rotating much faster uh, than the moon is orbiting around it. The Earth is actually deformed uh, by the Moon, and the, the clear visible sign is the, the, the phenomenon of tides that we see in the ocean. Uh, due to the tides in the oceans, uh, the Moon is actually going away from us. It's like a few centimeters per year. And uh, the rotation of the Earth is slowing down. For example, in the past, uh, the, the duration of the day was actually shorter, and in the in future it's going to be longer, and the Moon is going away. So the plat back to the Trappist-1 planets, because they're tidally locked, does that mean if there are oceans on those planets that they wouldn't have tides in the same way that we do? Exactly. It would be uh, like static always. Uh, so you, you wouldn't have low tide and high tide like we have. Uh, but the, the, the thing is that uh, when we say that planets are synchronized and everything, it's, uh, it's only when you consider la like the, the rocky parts of the, of the planet. But recent works uh, have shown that if you consider the atmosphere, you can have not exactly synchronization for uh, specific cases. So maybe they are not synchronised exactly. So how does Emmeline begin to calculate the tidal forces on this system that is 39 light years away? So basically what you have is like the position of the planet at a certain time. And so you have the characteristics uh, of its orbit, like uh, the orbital radius, the eccentricity, the inclination, and you also have the, the spin states of the, of the planets. For example, uh, in my simulations, I can see the, the eccentricity oscillations, which is uh, typical when you have a multi-planet system. So the, the eccentricity is oscillating. And for example, this has a strong effect on the on the tidal heating inside the, the planet. So the, the point is that uh, when the planet is on an eccentric orbit, the gravitational force it feels on each point of the orbit is different. The stress on the planet is different. So the, the planet is constantly uh, being uh, deformed. And this uh, creates uh, heat uh, in the interior due to friction. The consequence of that is that you have a very uh, active volcanism. There's a very good example of this effect in our own solar system on one of Jupiter's moons called Io. Now, if an image of Io hasn't immediately popped into your mind, head to the internet and find one. It is stunning. And it's just one step in our minds from that volcano-covered moon to the seemingly volcanic planets of Trappist-1. That's not the only similarity to the Jupiter system, and there's this idea of resonance between the planets. The ratio of the orbital periods of two neighbouring planets is a ratio of integers. So, for example, when a planet D turns around the star three times, planet E turns around the star two times. So you have this, uh, these uh, specific ratios between each of the planets. 
which is exactly like uh, in the Jupiter system, where when you those uh, four turns, Europa makes two and Ganymede makes uh, one. So you also have this kind of uh, uh, resonant architecture. It's really like a scaled-up system of Jupiter. 80 mass of Jupiter, it's just slightly bigger, uh, and uh, the, the bodies around it uh, are more massive than the, the satellite of Jupiter. And actually, if you look at the orbital period, so the duration of the, the orbital year, it's very close to, to what we observe for Jupiter. So what about the habitability of these planets? With, with TRAPPIST-1, several of those planets lie in the classic habitable zone where liquid water can exist, and some of the other planets lie at areas where orbits where you could get liquid water at certain parts of the surface where, you know, the Terminator, you know, where the daylight and the night side come together and temperatures might be just about right. But you have to think about other effects, you know, what's the effect of the... You're quite close to the star, the star's different to the sun, red dwarf stars can be more active, so, you know, do you receive more X-ray radiation as the during the lifetime of the planet and there are lots of people working on these problems and they're trying to predict whether it all adds up to being able to support life long term or not it's 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 complicated because once you think about the the rocky planets in the solar system you know the advantages of the earth if the earth's got a molten core so it has a significant magnetic field which protects us from cosmic radiation and from solar radiation and we've got a moon which keeps our rotation axis stable some people argue that you're protected from impacts because of Jupiter. Other people argue that Jupiter sent enough comets our way to <laughs> <laughs> fill us up with water. Um, you know, and then you look at Venus and your runaway greenhouse effect. You look at Mars, probably did have running water in its early days, but not massive enough, lost its atmosphere, lost that water. It, it is a complicated picture to know whether these rocky planets will have yeah. the conditions to support life or not. And... Um, I mean, look, and then you think about extreme forms of, of extreme conditions, extreme forms of life, and we've no idea whether one of the moons of, of Jupiter might have life. I mean, people speculate about Europa. Mm. And there's a liquid ocean underneath that ice, and maybe there's life in it. Maybe there is. Yeah. We need to <coughs> go there and have a look. There's really no doubt what the scientists are looking forward to most in terms of really digging down into that question about habitability and probing the atmospheres of these planets. And that, of course, is the James Webb Space Telescope. It will be really with James Webb that we will get uh, uh, really a, a good view of what is happening on this planet. What are they made of and what are the surface conditions? And if we detect, for instance, dense atmosphere and that we are pretty sure that the, the winds from the star are strong, we should conclude that there is a magnetosphere protecting the atmosphere of the planet because else it would be eroded very quickly. So at the end, we, we should have a very thorough understanding of this system. But it will begin with with few steps, the masses of the planet, first traces of the atmosphere, and then it will accelerate with James Webb toward a complete understanding within five to ten years. And maybe the detection of biosignatures on one of these planets. Okay. Wow. Which, could, which could be fun. Yeah, amazing. There's a new project called Planets Eclipsing Ultra-Cool Stars, or Speculos, or Speculus, I don't know how you pronounce that, which is currently under construction. 
And Speculos will observe more than ten times more stars than Trappist did and much greater precision. The team say that before that survey is over, we can expect to have discovered a dozen planetary systems similar to TRAPPIST-1, all of which will be amenable for in-depth atmospheric investigations using the James Webb Space Telescope. But that's all to come over the next few years. In the coming weeks and months, there's more to come from the TRAPPIST-1 observations. Uh, well, we actually, we have a, a, an article in a pipeline, uh, I mean, being refereed, uh, about uh, some recent results we had with the K2 mission that actually observed the system for some time. I don't know uh, how much I can say about that. I guess I can say that we, we were able to uh, give uh, an estimate of the orbital period of the seventh planet. As all the others, uh, it's also in a resonant configuration. It's very, very likely that there are more than seven planets. You know, why not? So the, the, the only thing is that we need to observe the system for a longer time, hoping that these eventual additional planets are also in this configuration when they are going to pass in front of the star to create a transit. But the farther it is, they are, the, the harder it is to detect them. We, we, we are now, you know, gathering a lot of information about the system, so maybe we are going to add planets in the future. But, uh. I said at the start of this podcast that I like to look up into the night sky and ponder those stars that I can see and wonder about the planets orbiting them. But these seven or more exoplanets are orbiting a star that we can't see. There are something in the order of 70 billion brown dwarf stars that we can't see in the night sky. Michel Guillon was involved in another paper published earlier this year which looked back at Spitzer Space Telescope data which suggested that around 35 to 40% of brown dwarf stars have Earth-sized planets orbiting them. Next time you look up into the night sky on a dark night, maybe, just maybe, it's the stars you can't see that are more likely to be orbited by planets and moons that might just Harbour Life. I'd like to thank the team at Physics World again for asking me to make this podcast. And of course, Mikkel, Catherine, Emmeline and Matt for talking to me. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you've got any thoughts or questions, do leave a comment on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com or tweet us at physicsworld. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.